Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast. Hey family, I hope you're well wherever you are and you got that thin blue smoke rolling. This is episode 3 of season 6, my US road trip part 2. In this season I kick things off with two weeks in New Orleans. There I head to a couple of competitions and spend some time hanging out with the who's who of Southern Barbecue. From there it's up to Kansas City for four days of Barbecue Nirvana at the National Barbecue and Grilling Association's Annual Conference and Excellence Awards. The final two weeks of the journey see us heading to Arkansas for some R&R, including bass fishing, monster trucks, a state cook-off association competition, an AK-47 and a brush with a tornado. And of course, you're coming with me. In this episode, I head down to the National Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. There I chat with Dan Robert, the curator of meat science programming. Dan was born into a family-owned meat processing and smokehouse business in Louisiana, and after earning a degree in food science, had a 25-year career with the US FDA, traveling the US and the world inspecting thousands of meatpacking plants. In this fascinating interview, I get a lesson in the history of meat in the US, and we also get into different meat processing methods from around the world. Before we get into it, I'd like to let you know about our awesome merch shop. We've got our incredible Smoking Hot Confessions tumblers, as well as hoodies, hats, t-shirts, and stickers. There's also two amazing ebooks: 27 Lessons Learned from Competition Barbecue, and the delicious Bacon Manifesto. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com shop to check it out. I'd also like to invite you to join us at the Smoking Hot Confessions community on Facebook. If you're looking for a barbecue group full of open-minded people who just love to help each other out... The Smoking Hot Confessions community is a great place to continue the conversation. Finally, however you listen to this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. It really helps me spread that barbecue love. So without further ado, grab yourself a cup of thick black coffee and a big old lamb loin chop and join me as I take a journey through the history of meat in the USA. This is the internationally awarded Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast with your host, Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Are you looking for a barbecue store experience that leaves you not just happy with your purchase, but genuinely excited about it? Barbecues and More, the Weber specialist on Weber Drive, is the place for you. Family owned and operated since 2001, the husband and wife team of Jenny and Gary have been combining their love of smoking and barbecue with their genuine product knowledge to help their customers give a truly great barbecue experience to their family and friends. The product range is vast with all the smokers and barbecues from Weber, as well as GMG, Hark, Masterbuilt and Pit Brothers. Then there's their famous The Art of Smoking classes that are regular sellout successes. Combined with a huge range of smoking accessories, rubs and sauces, they have all the right products to satisfy your needs. And your wants. Find out more at barbecuesandmore.com.au That's B-A-R-B-E-Q-U-E-S and more.com.au Hey folks, it's a beautiful day in New Orleans in in Louisiana here and I'm having a great chat with Dan Robert, the curator of the meat science programming at the National Food and Beverage Museum. Dan, how are you going today, mate? Good morning. Glad to have you here. Mate, it's great to be here. So 
to kick things off, could you fill us in with a bit of your background in the uh, in in how you got involved with meat science? Oh my goodness, uh, we got to go back a long way. <laughs> Uh, I was raised in a family, uh, a native of Louisiana here. Uh, I'm fourth generation meat processor. Uh, we own two slaughter processing plants here in Louisiana that lasted 93 years. Wow. My great grandfather started. Um, uh, when I graduated high school, uh, I went to LSU. Got a degree in food science and nutrition. Uh, then I went to University of Missouri, Columbia, grads, gra graduate work in meat science. Uh, after that, I had an internship with Iowa Beef Processors, IBP, uh, in Dakota City, Nebraska uh, for a year. I came back from there, came back to the university, had several job offers, uh, accepted a position with the uh, USDA, uh, food Safety Inspection Service, uh, Meat and Poultry Inspection. Uh, I worked for them and the USDA Meat Grading and Certification Branch for 25 years. And uh, so I'm retired from them. And um, my position here at uh, Southern Food and Beverage um, is a great way, I guess, to... Um, share a lot of my experience and my knowledge that I've, I've been had the opportunity to be in over 700 plants one time or the other. Wow. And, I, you know, you learn a little from everywhere you go, yeah. you know. Um, uh, what we do here, um, I teach all the meats classes, um, uh, demos, meats classes. Um, we do a lot of uh, consultant work here. Uh, specializing with smaller to mid-sized meat processing plants throughout the country. Uh, research and development here, new products, um, new techniques, seasonings, flavorings, you name it, we do it. And uh, also we're getting involved uh, into uh, internships, job placement in the meat industry, in management and uh, uh, QC, QA positions. Yeah, right. Wow. So with that kind of that um, that family history with in the in the meatpacking industry, that ninety three years. What's that? Your grandfather, great grandfather, great grandfather yes. kicked that off, started yeah, that off. Absolutely. Yeah. And then and then you've done uh, your time in that business, and then also twenty five years with the USDA. Yes. How have you seen the meat industry sort of change and transform oh and evolve goodness. over that time? It's. Uh well, I, I guess the only way to describe that uh, is just use an example. Um, I can go back in the 70s, in the 80s, <clears throat> say hogs. We're, we're talking about, you know, pork. Well, back in those days, everybody said, oh, my goodness, they're too fat. Uh, they, we, 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 we're health conscious. We've got to lean this up and lean them up, and, and, and they're too fat, and, and it's not good for you, and it's not good. And at one time, uh, they had, it was a huge problem for smaller processors because they had the slaughter weights down to 225 pounds. Oh, wow. That's what the packers were wanting. And uh, just for a bacon, an example, I mean, it, it just wasn't big enough, thick enough. I mean, you might have an inch thick bacon. Well, nobody wants that. You know? No, that's, that's... And so it was a big problem. And, of course, we weathered through it. And then 
as time evolved, uh, now the trend, you can't get fat enough now. You see what I'm saying? You, you, see, you know, everybody understands that fat is flavor. Lipid is flavor. You yeah. know? So now the slaughter weights have swung back to the average slaughter weight right now is 325 pounds. Wow. So we've gained 100 pounds. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, the pork industry, is, you know, as well as the cattle industry, has went through a lot of changes to meet customer demand uh, with genotype, phenotype. Uh, 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 you know, with the uh, breeding programs. Um, so, in other words, we've just gone in a big circle. Yep. So, I've been doing this long enough to see the whole big circle. <laughs> so, I don't know what's next for the next 20 years. But one thing I have seen, uh, and I was talking to a gentleman the other day, um, uh, flavorings are changing at a faster rate than I've ever seen in my career. Interesting. It's all about flavorings. Let me give you a good example. You know, here in the Deep South, we like our food seasoned. You know, a lot of people think that uh, Cajun Creole food is hot. Well, we don't refer to it as that. We refer to it as seasoned. You know, layered flavors, deep layer flavorings, you know, throughout a cooking process or, you know, whatever you're making. And... uh, <clears throat> the um, say for instance I remember several years ago and it's still like that to a point uh, you could go to Michigan or you could go to Wisconsin or whatever and um, say you would eat a, a, a smoked sausage or, or, or you know any type of meat product well it was so mild just salt and pepper that's it and very little of that. I don't even, some of them, I don't think they even put pepper in. They just showed the pepper to it. You know, I don't know. It was, it was that mild. And, of course, you know, down here we really like our food seasoned. Um, so, you know, say from the 80s till right now, uh, and I'm seeing, I'm a member of the American Association of Meat Processors. And, you know, I've got friends all over the country that are, that are meat plant operators. And... Some of the products right now in Wisconsin have more seasoning in them than we than we use down here. Oh wow! So the younger generation, and I got to credit a lot of this with the snack food industry. Uh You know, uh, potato chips, for example. Uh, I remember years ago when I was a kid, there were only two flavors. There was original potato chip, just salt. Yep. And then barbecue. I remember when the barbecue flavor comes. Okay. Now you can go to the grocery store. Look how many you got. You have two or three hundred. There's an entire aisle, it's, six shelves it's high. It's unlimited. Yeah, yeah. It's unlimited. Yeah. So the snack food industry really had a main drive into the other food industry as far as the meat industry goes with flavorings. So... You're you're going to see more and more of that flavorings, and um, I have processors right now that, uh, in fact, I talked to one guy yesterday in Missouri. He makes 50 different types of bratwurst. 50 50 types of bratwurst? Yes, sir, for different flavorings. And I said, my gosh, I said. That's a lot of sausage. That's a lot of different. (laughs) How do you do You know, he said, well, if I wasn't selling it, I wouldn't do it. And then also, too, people really demand quality. Um, in the old days, it was numbers. 
um, you just could not process enough livestock for the demand. I mean, it was just, and we always held our standards high as far as quality. Uh, but now, nowadays, it's all about quality. It's all about quality. You have different programs in the meat industry, like Certified Angus Beef. Uh, that program kicked off several years ago, and you know it's the upper two thirds of choice. I mean, you know, I, people ask me, they say, "Well, where's the best beef, or where can I get the best steaks?" And it's not, and it's hard to say because there's so many, you know, so much out there. I say, well, my advice is to go to your local meat market or go to your local butcher or grocery store, and if they sell certified Angus beef, you are assured that is the upper two-thirds of, of, of choice, uh, and in some cases, almost prime, you know. So that's as high as quality as you really want to go, unless you want to go with the prime, you know. Well, that's an interesting point. I went to um, Costco the other day, and I bought a mm -hmm. bunch of steaks, and um, I didn't know what the difference was between choice and prime. Are you able to just quickly explain to me what well, like the how grading standards that that's that's what uh, uh, you know with the meat inspection uh, meat inspection uh, involves to uh, um, produce a regulatory agency that that is over the sanitation and to make a product wholesome. In, in the harvest plants, we start with the animortem inspection. Then we do a postmortem inspection. Each animal, each animal is inspected. Wow. Postmortem inspection. Yep. Each animal and animortem. Um, in your major plants, there will always be an IIC, inspector in charge, which is a VMO, a veterinary medical officer. So if there is a carcass that is questionable, uh, it's segregated off and then the, it's finalized. Uh, to be either passed or condemned. By so, the, so we're talking about things like tumors or things of like that alley? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, the USDA uh, meat grading and certification branch, um, they are USDA. It's two complete different agencies. What, what our purpose was is to assure the, the public that if you buy choice beef, that's what you're getting. We're the ones that made that deter. We graded the carcasses, beef, lamb, and veal, okay? And then there is poultry grading as well. Um, we're the ones that slapped the ink on the carcasses. Yep. In other words, we made the determination uh, based on many factors of the yield grade and the quality grade of that animal. So today, what you see in the stores, now the grading standards are long, and the uh, different types of grades are long. In, in the grocery stores right now, the only thing you'll see is prime, choice, or select, which meaning prime would be the top of, you know, that's the best you can get, then choice, then below that, select. Now, there's some consumers out there that don't want a lot of fat, you know, so they'll go with select grades. Okay. You know? Um, uh, there's some people that uh, the intramuscular fat or the marbling uh, choice is still not good enough for them, and they want the best, the very best, which would be prime. Right. You know? Yep. So that's the way the grading standards. And then below um, select, it, you will not see that in the retail sector at all. That 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 product. You if they do not grade select. 
they go as no roll, what we call referred to as no roll. They're okay. just not graded. And graded. where does that make go? Um, mostly uh, further processing items, ground beef, um, heat thermal products, uh, value-added products. There's nothing wrong with the meat at all. It, the wholesomeness is not the issue. It's just the quality of it would not be because the animal would be too old or the sex of the animal or the um, uh, lack of feeding, finishing, you know. Yep. So that product can be used for ground beef or uh, uh, stew meat or um, summer sausage or, you know, those, those type of items. Oh, okay, right. right. So most of it still goes into food, food products. It's not oh, like, absolutely. It, it's not absolutely. wasted during all Right, that. right. Right. Yeah. Personally, uh, I would not, you know, say, for instance, if you had a prime steer, uh, that carcass graded prime, I wouldn't want ground beef out of that. Personally, me, I would prefer ground beef to be from a grass-fed animal instead of a grain-fed animal or an animal that would be a commercial grade or something that did not have a lot of... Uh, in, you know, or your subcutaneous fat or internal fats or your, your marbling or your intramuscular fats, you know. Now it would be a little leaner. Now, that's an interesting point. Could you um, tell me a little bit more about the differences between grass-fed and grain-fed? Uh, grass-fed beef uh, is really, really gaining popularity right now. Um, is that because of a like a an, an ethics standpoint or is it all about the flavor of the meat or is it both? It, it runs hand in hand in both. Uh, it, it's um, uh, a lot of grass-fed, um, you know, people that 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 like that product. Um, they swear by it, and if that's what you like, hey, I'm I'm cool with that. I mean, I'm 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 okay. I don't prefer grass-fed as far as a steak would be or whatever. It, I prefer grain-fed. Now ground. I'm the other way around. I would prefer grass-fed as I would grain-fed ground. Uh, it's just what a person really prefers. Um, there was a study done a couple of three years back. Uh, you can, uh, I'll send you the link to it. Um, at Texas A&M University, a graduate student uh, done a really good research, uh, health aspects of grain-fed to uh, grass-fed. Interesting. And... There were no differences. <laughs> That's what the finding. That was, was not where I was expecting that was going. <laughs> and uh, you know, you, 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 some of the people listen to this. They say that guy, that old man, don't know what he's talking about. Well, look, I'm not the one that done it. <laughs> <laughs> This is Adam from Texas Barbecue, and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confessions. Charcoal is a leader in the barbecue scene. Whether it's sponsoring festivals, supporting teams, or supplying fuels for your backyard cookouts. Their charcoal burns clean and hot and is also sustainable, renewable, eco-friendly, and 100% natural. Aware of their global responsibilities as an industry leader, their charcoal is made from an invasive species that is destroying valuable farmland in Namibia and Botswana. Clean Heat Charcoal empowers those African communities by offering employment opportunities to the locals that they wouldn't otherwise have. 
There is also the benefit of returning the local ecosystem to a state of balance, benefiting the local farmers and their communities. It's easy to see why it's the fuel of choice of top competitive teams such as the Smoking Joint, Suck Knuckle Smokers and Smoke and Steel. With distributors nationwide, follow Clean Heat Charcoal on Facebook and Instagram to learn more. So is there is there a higher fat content in grain-fed animals then? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yes. You would have uh, there's there are several fat deposits in an animal. The first fat deposit is KPH, kidney, heart, and pelvic fat. That's removed. The animal's born with it. Uh, that's removed at the packing plant. Okay. Then there's subcutaneous fat. That's fat on top. You know, sub Q. Uh, some people got more than others. <laughs> I think I've got a little more around my waist than you do. Yeah. <laughs> That's subcutaneous fat. Then there's intermuscular fat, fat between the muscles, seam fat, we call that. And then the intramuscular fat or the marbling. And the marbling can only be achieved by really, and there would be some people argue this, about the last 120 days of feeding, finishing that animal. And trust me, it is an art when you're feeding cattle to get to the point of where you want that carcass to be. Because when we look at a live animal, as opposed, and we're, we're cattlemen as well, my family, we're in the cattle business. But we look at an animal different. I look at an animal from, not from the outside in, I'm looking from that animal from the inside out. What, when he's on a hook, you know, bottom line, what he is going to produce for us to produce the highest quality that we can obtain, you know, and sell to the consumer. And we do that by breeding, uh, uh, breeding programs and um, uh, your, your, your feed, your, 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 your feed rations. And it takes a long time to really get that right and down to a pat. The, the grass-fed industry, uh, I really didn't think it would, you know, really take off and go, but it did, yeah. and uh, it's here to stay, and uh, people swear by it, and if, the, if uh, again, I, I'm a type of person, if that's what you like, that's, that's the best, that's what, you, that's what you need to be eating, in other words, you know. Personally, uh, again, with your middle meats, you know, your ribeyes, your, your, uh, strips, uh, uh, so forth, we refer to as middle meats. I prefer grain-fed myself. Yeah. Aged uh, grain-fed. Dry-aged, wet-aged? Dry-aged. Yeah. Uh, minimum of 28 days. Right. A lot of guys are, um, I shudder sometimes when I see, you know, some of these chefs that, uh, you know, they're going 150, 175, 200 days. They're, they're doing, and I'm thinking, wow, you're kind of pushing it, you know. Here's the way, and, and I was talking to a, uh, a cattle bar the other day um, uh, for uh, Tyson Foods now that owns IVP, and we were talking about that. And if 28 days of either wet aging or dry aging, either one, if that's not good enough, it's, it's not going to get any better. <laughs> now, there's going to be a lot of people that will say, well, you know, I, I'm going to argue that point. But as far as palatability, tenderness, 28 days, trust me, is... Is uh, the line. Yeah, yeah. That's what I would do. 
you know, I mean, because the, the more you hang on to that product and age it more, the more you're losing too. The yeah, more yeah. you're losing in yield. Yeah. We're, um, we're experiencing something in Australia where dry aging is becoming kind of a bit of a fad at the moment. So what, um, what sort of advantages would you have dry aging over wet aging, if at all? Well, <clears throat> wet aging, you're, 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 you're aging those primals or subprimals in the cryvac, okay? So the breakdown um, of your connective tissue and... Uh, to age that product occurs within that controlled environment, okay? Uh, the dry aging, you're removing moisture. So in other words, the wet aging, it's not allowed to move, remove moisture. Mm. So the dry aging would remove moisture from that carcass and develop more into a deeper, richer beef flavor. Ah, um, oh, okay. Uh, uh, I like both, you know? Um, in the old days, when we aged beef, it was all, now Now it's just almost unheard of. You don't see that much anymore. Very few people do it. Um, in the old days, uh, uh, dry aging, the, the whole carcass was dry aged. And a lot of times they were in coolers with um, uh, infrared lights, black lights in there to keep the you wow. know, bacteria down. Um, they, the, the coolers had to be kept extremely uh, clean. Yeah. Very, very clean. In fact, I can't tell you when I was a kid how many times I had to scrub that aging cooler <laughs> with an iodine-based cleaner that, that, you know, my father was a stickler. The walls, everything in that cooler were stainless steel. The ceiling was stainless steel. Uh, the floors were even stainless. You know, the, the entire cooler was stainless steel. And um, the... So now you're seeing a lot of the chefs, and it's pretty, it's pretty impressive what these guys have done. They've done their homework on it. I've seen coolers lined with salt rock, you know, for added flavor. Uh, um, you know, all different types of situations where you can... Uh, age beef, either wet aging or dry aging, but now they're using um, primals and, uh, sub, and sometimes subprimals, you know, to to uh, dry age. And there's a lot of trim involved when you do that. There's a lot of trim, you know. Dry, dry aging is very expensive. Yeah, you know, when you're in business, when you're in business, because when you're in business, it's the bottom. You know, the, the bottom lines. The, Turnover. The, 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 yeah. the dollar, you know, yeah, yeah. the money, you know. So the longer you hang on to that product, the more it's shrinking. And then, of course, you know, when you get ready to process it, you, there's a lot of trimming involved. Um, and I won't get into the trimming part of it. Uh, there's some guys that are saving those trimmings and grinding them and using them. I do not recommend that at all. That belongs in the inedible barrel right there. Why is that? Is that, it, is that because that's where the bacteria builds absolutely. up if, it, if it's going to? Right. It's just in, in putting that into a comminuity product, you know, to grind it, you're dealing with fire right there for food safety. I wouldn't recommend it at all. But a lot of, a lot of guys do it, and uh, they swear by it. So, but personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. So would you um, recommend uh, dry-aging meats for competition teams? 
Not really. And the reason being, uh, say, for instance, with the barbecue guys, you know, for the most part, your brisket that you're going to be uh, uh, cooking, well, you put 12 hours on a brisket at 200 degrees or 225 or 250, you know, the heat is going to break that, you know. I mean, I could take a brisket out of an old bull, you know, an old tough old bull. You cook him long enough, it's going to be tender. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like the old people used to say about barbecue, cook them till the bones pull. Cook them till the bones pull. There wasn't no thermometers. There's no controllers. There was nothing. It was just that pit master, uh, he was out there, and, and he knew in his head when that meat was ready to go, when it was done, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and uh, but... Um, some guys are experimenting with uh, the competition circuit, uh, uh, wet aging uh, their briskets. Um, again, I, I don't see any advantages to that. I mean, you know, your, your heat thermal processing, when you're cooking it that long, is going to break that, uh, you know, it's going to break it down enough where the palatability or the tenderness is going to be there. So... It's kind of redundant. You, you, yeah, right. You'd be, just be wasting your time to do it. You know, I, I can't see any advantages with it. Interesting. So then wet aging or dry aging is sort of more applicable for grilling than perhaps. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. Right. So having, ha having traveled around the world, 700-odd plants, um, without getting into the political implications of it, right. would you be able to give us a breakdown of the differences between standard meat processing, halal meat processing, and kosher meat processing? The um, halal meat or, or, or halal form of slaughtering uh, uh, meats and the kosher form of slaughtering, they're very different. They're similar in a lot of ways, but they're extremely different in a lot of ways. Um, it um, they're facing that industry right now is facing a lot of scrutiny worldwide. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, and, and, and don't quote me on this, but I'm almost certain, I was reading an article uh, here recently that kosher slaughtering had been, and halal, had been outlawed. It's either in Sweden or Denmark. And, really? And I'm sorry. Uh, I wow. can't remember which one it was. But that was just here recently. Yep. Um, the um, uh, Dr. Temple Grandin from Colorado State University She's a good friend of mine, and she is the, in my opinion, one of the leading experts in the world on animal welfare. Um, and she's a stickler, and I am too, for safety and animal welfare. From the old days, uh, the Humane Slaughter Act, uh, when it was enacted, uh, it really cleaned the industry up. And the way the, the, the regs read still to this day is the animal has to be fully unconscious or impervious to pain prior to being cast, cut, or cut. Yep. And I... I I'm almost certain that's the way the whole thing's still read. That's been so many years, you know, I've had that. But that, that is the way. 
uh, with food safety inspection service, uh, meat inspection right now, animal welfare is taken extremely serious right now, more than ever, more than ever I've seen it. And it's good. The meat industry has really cleaned their act up. You know, uh, these plants, major packing plants, they spend billions per, uh, per year for, for animal welfare. Uh, the uh, uh, stunning design uh, equipment, uh, the restrainers, the um, uh, audits, slaughter audits that are done. Uh, in fact, there is talk about uh, some plants that are even saying that uh, um, to do a live webcam at their stunning site that just can be to, seen by the world. Just to expose everything to expose the public. Expose it, show it to them. Right. Glass walls. Yeah, Let them yeah. see what goes on there. Yeah, tra transparency is it, kind exactly, of the, uh, exactly. the, the, the buzz at the moment, um, isn't it? So. You know, the meat industry for years has been uh, um, not had a real good uh, relationship with a lot of the animal activists. <laughs> you know, right? Yep. And this and that. And uh, but you know, in my opinion on that, um, people, we have to eat. You know, we have to eat. Yep. And animals are raised for food. If that animal ge gives his life to sustain life to us, we have to treat that animal with the utmost respect. Yep. And that's the way I was taught all my life. Mm. Yeah, me too. I, I grew up on a farm. We used to uh, raise and slaughter our, our own pigs, goats, and sheep as well. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. We we never did cows because they were too heavy to, to haul up by hand on the uh, <laughs> on the on the engine block. But right. Uh, <laughs> well, it's it's uh, you know a fifteen hundred pound steer is a little bit different from a two hundred pound or two hundred fifty pound pig. Exactly. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So the the process then in a in a modern Western plant. The, the animals come in, they get stunned with the, like the electric hammer gun, is that right? Well, uh, you, you're talking cattle? Yeah, yeah, sorry, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. prior to the processing of cattle, the cattle are unloaded at the facility, they're given a rest, uh, they're given access to water at all times. If they're held over till the next day, they must be fed, okay? So most of the beef plants try to run, run them all in that day, you know. Um, there, there's an anti-mortem inspection, before death inspection done, normally by the veterinary me medical officer, and then with the plant personnel in different lots of cattle going to slaughter. Uh, if, there's, if, there's, if they do, do happen to notice one that's maybe limping or doesn't uh, look just right, they'll segregate that animal and then put him in a process where they take the, the, the temperature on him and then make a final disposition whether he's eligible for slaughter or to be condemned right there for whatever reason. Uh, prior to that, they're moved on up through the process to the stunning box. Um, most major plants right now, bigger beef plants, it's a V-type restrainer. The cattle move into it. Um, they kind of step off in it. Their feet are hanging. You're loose. They're not on the floor. Uh, there's, it's a V-type with a conveyor that moves them where they, it will restrain that animal from movement. Right. Then when they do get to the stunner, uh, most of them 
in, in, in most of your beef plants, uh, are, they use a pneumatic, uh, air-operated uh, stunner, or they'll use a captive bolt model, right. which basically runs a piston into the uh, cranium of the animal and yep. ren renders him insensible, you know, to pain. Okay. Yeah. Uh, hogs. Now, most of your hogs are either electrically stunned or CO2 stunned. Really? Which CO2 stunning uh, has been around now for a good many years. And uh, uh, say, for instance, they'll run maybe 60 pigs into a chute or a pen, and that pen closes on all sides and it goes under the ground. And when it goes under there, there's CO2 gas, and when they come back up, the animals are asleep. Right. I talked to a, and I can't mention the plan, but there was a uh, maintenance supervisor that they were had some problems with that, and they uh, no, they were installing it. Is when they installed it, and uh, he was in it, and I guess somebody didn't think they were in the pen. Well, uh oh, he got caught in there, and when he went down and come back up. He was out, and of course, you know, the paramedics were there and this and that and whatever, it revived him, but he just said it was the most peaceful thing. He told me, he said, he just went right to sleep. Wow. He just, you know, got real sleepy and kind of, it was it. He said a peaceful way to go. Yeah, right, okay. And then, of course, at that point, uh, whether it be the hogs, lambs, or beef, uh, chains put on the, uh, the hind leg, they're raised up, and then exsanguination. Got a project you'd like to work on with the SHC team? Shoot Ben an email on ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. If you're looking for your next barbecue smoker or grill, Jagged Woodfire has got what you need. Owners Julianne and Glenn are multiple award-winning barbecue competitors who've even travelled to the US to compete at the World Barbecue Championships in Houston, Texas. Based out of Perth and shipping nationwide, Jagged is one of the largest pit builders in the country and has an ever-growing lineup of meat cooking machinery. Not only do they have their now famous smoker ovens, they are also producing incredibly efficient gravity-fed cabinet smokers and some of the most stylish asado grills you're ever going to see. Jagged is also well known for amazingly detailed custom work, ranging from backyard designs all the way to installations in commercial kitchens. Proudly Australian-designed, owned and manufactured, you can find out more at jaggedwoodfire.com.au, spelled J-A-G-R-D. Once again, head to jaggedwoodfire.com.au, spelled J-A-G-R-D, to learn more. So then, how does the um, halal method work like what's the Halal process there? slaughters and kosher slaughter the animal is uh, put into a restrainer their um, there's a um, their head sticks out uh, there is a bar that goes under their jaw pneumatically and it will extend the neck of the animal and as kosher slaughter a, a helper will wash the neck and squeegee the neck and then the rabbi will come and make his cut. With the knife, okay. And yep. it's uh, uh, kosher slaughter. I've witnessed it literally millions of animals. Yep. And in my opinion, if it's done right, in my opinion, that's it. That's the most humane form of slaughter. Right. In my opinion. And uh, within seconds, that animal is just 
he, gone. He's just gone. Yeah, he's yeah. just gone. Yeah. So the is the difference then between um, halal and kosher? Then is that to do with the the, the, the prayers? Is that what that is? Is that uh, what the no? It, it involves on the kosher slaughter. It, it's it's much more entailed than the halal slaughter. A lot of the emphasis is put on the sharpness of the knife, the caliph that they would use. Uh, there, there's, there's only special knives that they use for that. Okay. The knife that they use, the, the, the blade, they're very long. It uh, depends on what species you're on. Sure. But it has to be twice as long as the animal's throat. Okay. That, that the, the animal they're slaughtering. Yep. And the edge on these knives are, the, the blade is checked prior to slaughter, and immediately after slaughter. And the, it's checked with a thumbnail, or, or a fingernail, which you run it up on the blade and you can feel any nick. Wow. If there's any nick at all, that animal's not, not kosher. At okay. All, at all. And then um, also prior to slaughter, um, they, they, uh, the rabbis do their own inspection. The, the animal has to be in perfect health and uh, then it gets into even more detail with that. There are certain fats that have to be removed that's not permissible. You know, the hindquarters are not saved. That's trafe or unclean uh, because they only save the uh, forequarters because the meat has to be deveined. Right. Uh, salted and washed. And it, it, it's a very, very elaborate process. And it's taken extremely seriously, extremely seriously. Uh, whereas the uh, uh, halal um, is not as in-depth as far as the kosher slaughter. Okay. Right. So the, the biggest differentiating factor then would be the, the conscious state of the animal. Is that, Absolutely. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. And so that's yes. the, that would be the, the driving... And the kosher form of slaughtering, uh, the humane treatment of that animal is is so much a factor involved in it. It, it does sound like a very respectful the, the process. The uh, rabbis, and I know many, uh, these are some of the most wonderful people I've ever known in my life. They yeah. take their job extremely seriously, yeah. you know, because, you know, if that animal suffers, they failed, you know, and they take it heart. Mm. I mean, you know, it, it bothers them a lot. And the, the follow-on then would be that their congregation cannot cannot eat, basically. So exactly. their, their, the, the welfare of the congregation kind well, of... Well, it all, all goes all back to what back I was saying, rabbis, that, yeah. that you know, if, they, if, if that animal, if we have to take that animal's life to sustain our life, we give that animal the utmost respect. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've talked about then about um, sort of the the history of the meat industry. We've talked about where it's at now with some of the some of the uh, new developments in animal rights movements and how that's impacted the the meat industry as a whole. What do you see coming up in the in the future in the next sort of twenty years? Are are, are we going to be eating uh, sy uh, synthetic meat out of labs? I, I would hope not. <laughs> Me too. I would hope not. Uh, I'm I'm not a, a a fan of that at all. You know. Um, in fact, the state of Missouri, uh, 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 they just recently, a few months ago, passed a law that 
if you label a product meat, it has to be, it's not, can't be grown in a test tube. You know, it, it can't be on a Petri dish. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's got to be from an animal, you know. Now, my wife did just send me a, uh, an article about that just recently mm-hmm. saying that they had actually, just literally in the last two or three weeks, had actually changed that definition to allow meat grown in a lab to be classified as meat. In the state of Missouri? Oh, I don't know about the state of Missouri specifically, but just well, the, you know, the, I, the I, USDA I know as a whole. With the USDA, there's there's a lot out there right now. Any final rulings, I have not, I'm not familiar with them, or I haven't heard anything personally, you know. And then, of course, different countries, you know, it's going to be different, you know, in the U.S. as it would be in Australia or somewhere yeah, yeah. else. So. Uh, it's it, the, the what I see the future of the meat industry um, again um, our consumers now are demanding quality and the highest quality obtainable you're going to see more branded items um, you're going to see more flavorings again uh, newer newer flavorings um, in areas um, that, you know, of course, you know, anywhere in the South, you know, our, our food is much more seasoned than it would be in the Midwest or up North. That's changing really fast. And, you know, it's, it's just the generational aspect of it. It's the generational. Um, yeah, it, it's, we're seeing a lot of uh, consolidation now with some of the major meat packers. Um, they're buying up each other, you know. Uh, different countries are buying, you know. Um, Smithfield Foods is one. They were sold. Uh, JBS uh, Swift purchased uh, National Beef Packers here recently, or controlling interest of them. So we're going to see more and more of that. And um, uh, again, uh, more cuts in the meat industry or beef industry. More retail cuts, newer retail cuts, to util- to maximum utilize that carcass as as uh, um, as much as we can, you know, um, um, like a flat iron steak they came up with years ago. That muscle, yep. you know, you're going to see more and more of that, you know, to utilize maximum utilize that entire caucus. I'm looking forward to that. I think that's going to reduce the environmental impact of our, of right. the, of the meat industry, which, um, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm all about eating meat, but I was also raised in a generation where we're really concerned about the environment as well. So I, right. I, I love all that sort of stuff. The, the creativeness of finding these new cuts and then working out how to cook them. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I love all that sort of stuff. And then also to, um, uh, confinement feeding operations, um, What's that? Well, uh, large-scale feeding operations like in the pork sector or the poultry sector or whatever. You're seeing a lot more now uh, free-range. You're seeing... Okay, uh, so you're talking about like um, in Australia, we'd refer to that as battery feeding. Right. Yeah, okay, cool. Okay. Um, One instance right here in Louisiana, uh, he's a very good friend of mine, uh, uh, Galen Iverstein, Iverstein Family Farms meats in uh, Baton Rouge. Uh, they own a farm in Kentwood. They raise all their hogs cattle. 
uh, and poultry. Uh, they're grass-fed, uh, they're grain and grass-fed. Um, the, the hogs are free to, to roam. I mean, they're not confinement hogs. And the end product is, it's, it's unbelievable, the, 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 the product that he's producing right now. And Galen is a young man. I've followed him uh, several years now. Uh, he's got a meat market in Baton Rouge on Perkins, and he's doing really well with it. And uh, he's just getting ready to make the jump to get into his own harvest facility, slaughter plant. Wow. So I'm helping him with that a little bit to get that going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, rather than uh, having to transport animals, you know, 140 miles away to a slaughter facility, that's very stressful. Even that short trip is very stressful to that animal. And it just makes more sense that he would only have to drive 20 miles from where that animal was uh, raised all his life to, you know, the processing. That just made me think of a really tangential question. So mm-hmm. forgive me for you know, sidetracking this this, mm-hmm. this conversation. Um, I spent two years living in in South Korea, and you mm-hmm. you were just talking about um, how just simply transporting them 140 miles can really stress the animal. Oh, they had um, they had dog farms over there where they would farm a particular breed of dog for slaughter for oh my for, 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 for food. And the traditional Korean way of, of slaughtering them was to actually beat them with a stick first. With the, the theory was to get the adrenaline up, to get the adrenaline into the blood, and then you slaughter the dog, and then you eat the dog meat. And it was supposed to be good for man. Really? Um, huh. Does that sound that sounds, right at all? That sounds the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard <laughs> okay. in my life. And... Uh, 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 I would hope Nobody in this country would ever do it. And if they did, they better not let me find out about it. <laughs> you know. But no, and what we tell people and we, when, uh, you know, we're here, we're here to slaughter animals. We're not here to torment them. We're not here to uh, mistreat an animal. Um, that's not the case. Um, you know, you, you get an animal stirred up or you get them agitated or whatever. Uh, many times in our own facility, my family's facility, that animal would not be slaughtered that day. We may have to hold him two or three days sometimes to get him to calm down. You so know? you really don't want that adrenaline Oh my gosh, the- no, that affects the meat quality. You would end up with a dark cutter or the, uh, the blood sugars, the adrenaline in the animal. Uh, it would be like a marathon runner. Uh, what, what we refer to as a dark cutter um, like if you ran a marathon and they looked at your leg muscle, your leg muscle would probably be darkish blue to black. You know, <laughs> mine, instead of the mine cherry red. Would be you what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's called dark cutters. And it's a huge problem in the meat industry. Uh, uh, dark cutters in the, in the cattle industry is stress, pre-slaughter stress. And it's a huge problem. Hog uh, in in the pork sector, we have a problem called uh, PSE, pale soft and excretative pork. Uh, that's confinement raised hogs or any hog uh, that uh, you know that uh, is stressed prior to slaughter. You know, so again, and I, I'm I think you, you've really heard me stress on this. That animal prior to slaughtering. You have to take the utmost care of that animal. 
and, and, and keep remain as calm and everything. You can't be rattling. You can't be using, uh, at our slaughter facility, we never allowed hot shots, you know, electric. You know what I'm saying, a hot shot. Mm. Uh, we, everything was very calm. In fact, in our, in our, uh, the hog pens where we'd hold the hogs, we, we, we had the radio station playing. Um, and um, uh, the hogs preferred WWOZ out of New Orleans. <laughs> they, they liked that music, and they would be asleep. You know, we'd have to wake <laughs> them up to say, hey, let's go, you know. Um, so um, it... Uh, um, uh, again, in the future, as where we're going, you're going to see more and more of that, too, animal welfare. And uh, uh, I know there's a lot of issues right now with the environmental impact. Um, you know, that was one of the reasons the meat industry, you know, years ago, they were centered around the, the stockyards, like the Union stockyards in Chicago, the Kansas City stockyards, uh, National stockyards in East St. Louis, St. Paul, Sioux City, Iowa. Um, all over the terminal markets. So a lot of these animals were being brought from, say, western Colorado, for example, on a rail car, all the way to Chicago. Now, could wow. you imagine the stress on that animal being that far on a rail car? No That's food, Thousands no and thousands of miles, can, isn't it? Sometimes they'd be on there a week before they were unloaded. No food, no water. Wow. You know, so the meat industry and the livestock industry has really, really cleaned their act up. And uh, any of your listeners, um, I would encourage them to, uh, if you live by a facility, I don't know really any processors, uh, uh, whether it be small or large, if you would say, I would like to tour your facility, that would turn you down. I really don't know of too many. And if, if they would turn you down, in, they wouldn't be a good operator in my book, you know. Yeah, transparency is definitely the key in That's this uh, in this 21st century. Look, Dan, I want to say thank you very much for your time this morning. I realise you're a busy man. There's people popping in and out the door here. That's yeah. obviously something that they're putting together on uh, inside in the demo kitchen in there. So, mate, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to say thanks very much for your time, and um, I'm, I'm sure my listeners have appreciated you sharing well, your wisdom I, with I us. Well, I appreciate you coming today, and uh, uh, I guess I'll be seeing you this weekend with the hogs for the calls. I'll be there. You'll be there. Good. Uh, we're looking to have a good time. And I really enjoyed talking with you. And thank you so much. <laughs> and there you have it, family. The comprehensive history of meat in America with legend of the industry, Dan Robert. Be sure to add the National Southern Food and Beverage Museum to your road trip list. Not only is the place packed to the rafters with fascinating pieces of iconic Southern history, but there are often special events there. And of course, you'll be able to meet Dan Robert himself. Before I let you go, I want to remind you about our killer merch lineup, the Smoking Hot Confessions community on Facebook. And if you have a minute, it'd really help me out if you could subscribe, rate and review the show. The ratings and reviews trigger the algorithms and make Apple distribute the podcast further and wider. So they are really important and very much appreciated. And that's the end of the show. Till next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions. <laughs> <laughs>